All right, good morning. How is everyone? Good. Happy Thanksgiving. Belated happy Thanksgiving. Did, uh, raise your hand if you ate turkey this past week. Turkey, all right. How many of you ate, ate some ham? How about ham eaters? Uh, anyone throw out some steak? No steak. Uh, my wife, she uh, throws down on this chicken fried steak, homemade chicken fried steak, homemade gravy, and we had a whole bunch of sides. You know what? We got rid of the turkey and ham. We're like, nope, no turkey, no ham for Thanksgiving. So, uh, man, we ate good. It was a great week. Took some vacation time this week, so it was super awesome. Um, the week before, man, me and Candice were sick literally all week long. And uh, it was God's providence that we had a guest speaker that Sunday morning. We had the IMB missionaries with us from Turkey. So that was a blessing. And then this past week, just really got to just check out, spend time with family, unplug from the evil phone, right? The evil phone and, uh, and emails and calendar and deadlines and appointments and all that. It was awesome. So how many of you traveled this week? Raise your hand if you traveled, right? Just a few of you, all right? Everyone else kind of stayed local. It's kind of nice. Um, all right, we're going to be in, uh, we're going we're gonna to pick up our John series next week, but today we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. So t- take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 39 this morning. And we supplied message notes for you, so pull those out and uh, take them to your community group this week. If you're plugged into a group, that would be super awesome. All right, Romans chapter 8, 31 to 39, here we go. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the question, right? We're going to look at that question in a second. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's another question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There's another question. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Another question. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Another question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Another question. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans, I would say Romans is um, probably, we know all of, all of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but there's something very unique about the book of Romans I mean, it lays out so many deep theological truths. In this passage in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul masterfully crafts five questions to draw out the spectacular privileges that we have if we belong to Christ. In verse 31, he poses the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? The question, the the simple answer to that is no one. Verse 32, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
Verse 34, who is to condemn? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know, this past week being Thanksgiving, I was thinking this week, what should I be preaching on this week? I was trying to think of like a a passage about gratitude, uh, thanksgiving, what God has done for us in Christ, and I was led to Romans chapter 8, and so I want to really kind of highlight what God has done for us in Christ, and that's the key, in Christ. So this is going to be a a God-centered, Jesus-focused, gospel-saturated message. We're going to just we're just going to go vertical, and we're going to look to God this morning. And I hope that Romans eight will cultivate a heart within you, a heart of gratitude and a deeper love for Christ for what He's done for us. Look at verse thirty-one of Romans eight. Thirty-one says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's point number one, if you're taking notes. God is for us, not against us. And that's a good word for us to remember this morning. This is a good nugget of truth that we need to really kind of hide within our own heart. God is for you. He's in your corner. The Bible says that he's the author and the finisher of your salvation. When you place your faith in Christ, you were You moved from death to life. The Bible says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. The Bible says that when you came to faith in Christ, he began a good work in you. And he's going to finish that work. He's going to finish that work. See, God starts and God finishes. Amen? Isn't it a good thing that God doesn't treat us the way we treat one another? Sometimes I'm just through with you. I'm done with you, right? You you know? No, God's not like that. God starts a work, and he's going to finish the work. He's going to finish it. There's never going to be a moment that God's going to bail on your salvation. God doesn't give up on us. He's the author and finisher of of our salvation. He's for us. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, what then shall we say to these things? You should automatically say, well, what things? Well, what's, what's he referencing here? What, what things? What is Paul talking about? Well, in order to understand what he's talking about here, we need to back up and look at a few verses and, and kind of set the stage, the context. Look at verses 28 to 30. <clears throat> so here's the context. So he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I mean, that, that, those three verses right there, we could do an entire series on that, right? And really like dig deep. What does the Bible say about, you know, God calling us, his unconditional calling, you know, God, you know, his predestination call, God justifying us, right? God, the glorification that we have in Christ, but we're not, we don't have time to look at it, but let me make a few comments. Romans 8, 28, the passage we just read is not a universal promise, It applies only to believers. It says, and for those who love God, all things work together for good. So the, the question is, is Paul arguing that all things are good? Obviously not. Not everything is good, right? People sin against you. You sin against other people. There are bad, evil, sinful things that happen to us. 
There are bad, evil, sinful acts that we commit. And, and it creates a um, kind of a, a domino effect in our life because choices have consequences. He's saying that all things, all things work together for good. God, in his infinite wisdom and unwavering love, he can turn bad into good. He can turn failure into success. He can turn tragedy into triumph. He can turn suffering into joy. He can turn pain and misery into peace and contentment. You see this truth shine brightly all throughout the scripture. From the life of Joseph to Job to Jesus, bad things happen to good godly people. We're not exempt from suffering, but God in his infinite wisdom, in his unwavering love, he can, he's working behind the scenes. We don't even see God at work. We don't see his providence, we don't see his sovereignty, but we believe that God is, he's a providential God. He orchestrates circumstances to bring about his glory and his good will for your life. We, we know that God is sovereign, that he sits on the throne. The, the psalmist says that he sits on the throne and he does all that he pleases. That's the kind of God that I adore, that I worship, that I serve. He's a sovereign, omnipotent being. God works it all out for our good and for his glory. And then Paul goes on in the context there and he gives us a nugget of truth that is so amazing and I want you to see it. He says, those whom he foreknew. Literally, that means literally, it means to choose beforehand. Now here's the deal. I don't know what your view of election is. We're not gonna go down that rabbit hole, right? Whether it's conditional, whether it's based on your decision or it's unconditional, based on God's decision and him choosing before the foundation of the world. All I'll say is this, no matter what view of election that you hold to, here's the deal. Here's the overriding, overarching, supreme truth in light of everything. God placed his love on you before you did jack squat. This, this is what he's saying. Before we did anything, he placed his love on us. Whether you're a Calvinist or you're an Arminian, here's the deal. Both roads lead to the same conclusion. And you know what that same conclusion is? Salvation is of the Lord. Now listen, do I believe? I believe it's a mystery. I believe it's a paradox. I believe there's a choice. There's a, there's a will there. God's sovereign. God chooses. How those two things kind of come together, I, I don't know. I, but I do like what Charles Spurgeon said. You know, like the two train tracks. One is human responsibility, which is your choice, and one is God's sovereignty. God, God is sovereign in, in, in salvation. And here's the deal. When you first look at the train tracks in front of you, you see two tracks. In the distance, you see one. And that's how I see it. I, somehow, they come together. And, and God, in his infinite wisdom, he places his love on us before we did anything, before we were ever born. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. It says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, all of, these, um, all of these verbs are in the aorist tense, which means past action. Uh, it's in the past tense, which means it's already happened. 
So if you're in Christ and you've been justified, declared righteous because of Christ, his merit, not your merit, his life, not your life, right? His performance, not your performance. Everything, his moral record was applied to you. It was a perfect moral record. His righteousness, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're not clothed in our own righteousness because it's not good enough. We're dirty, right? All of our good works are like dirty rags to God. But the righteousness of Jesus clothes us and God sees us through Christ. It says those whom he he justified, he also glorified. So this glorification is now, but not yet. It's ours now in Christ. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our true home, our true citizenship is in another kingdom. Our real home is not here. Our real home is with Christ, right? We're a part of his kingdom. That is the kingdom we long for. That's the kingdom that that we're looking forward to. You know, I tell people when I do memorial services, I say, you know, when you die, you don't leave home, you go home. Because this is not our home. Our home is with Christ. Let me sum up verses 28 to 30 this way, the context. God is for you. Write this down. Write this down. God is working even though you may not see it or feel it. You know, Habakkuk said, the just shall walk by faith. Sometimes in life, things are bleak, hopeless, dark. You're walking with God and you're, you're facing disappointments. You're, you're facing setbacks. You're facing struggles. You're facing temptation. You're facing, you know, just disappointments of life, depression, whatever it is, broken relationships, maybe bankruptcy, you know, loss of a dream, dreams shattered, right? And life just is not turning out the way you thought it was. Here's the deal. God is on the throne and he's working in your life. You may not see it. You may not feel it, but God has your back. He's in your corner. God is behind the scenes working on your behalf. You know, some people think that God's in heaven and he's carrying a big stick and he's just waiting for you to get out of line and he's gonna hurt you. Or he's like some Greek God. You know, he's just this vengeful, you know, God of fury and wrath. And you get out of line, he's going to hunt you down. No. He's a good, good father. He's a good father. He's a good father that loves us, that wants the best for us. He's in our corner. He's for you, not against you. Romans 8, 32 It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The father gave up his son for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's point number two. God gives the most spectacular gifts. I mean, if God gave us Jesus, then God's going to give us all the other gifts, right? All the other blessings in life. Christianity is about God reaching to man. It's about God penetrating the lostness of humanity. It's about God sending his own son, Jesus, wrapped in human flesh, the God-man, who broke into the darkness of our world and he walked in our shoes and he was tempted in every way. And the Bible says he was sinless and he willingly gave his life on a cross so that we might know God the Father. 
Religion says, no, you have to pursue God. You gotta chase after God. You gotta hunt God down. You got to earn God's favor and earn his love. See, all the world religious systems are gonna tell you, you gotta do, you gotta do, you gotta do. Five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of Hinduism, the list goes on and on. But here's the deal. The Bible tells me that God chased me in Christ that God sent his son Jesus for me. I didn't chase him, he he chased me. God reached out to me, God reached out to you so that you can have a relationship with him. Isaiah, the prophet to Israel, 700 years before Jesus was born of a virgin, notice what he said. Notice these, these messianic statements, prophecies that he made about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You know, when you think about Good Friday. Good Friday was only good because of what happened three days later. When you look at different numbers in the Bible, different numbers have different significance. So the word one speaks of the unity of God. The the number seven speaks of uh, perfection. The number eight is about new beginnings. The number 40 is about testing and trials. The number three is the number of wholeness and completion. I want you to think about this for a moment. God is triune. He's three in one. He's the Father, he's the Son, and he's the Holy Spirit. We are triune in nature, body, soul, spirit. God is omnipresent, which means God is everywhere. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he's um, omnipotent, all-powerful. I was having a hard time getting that word out of my mouth. um, The revelation of God in the New Testament is who, who was, who is, who is to come. God's grace is manifested in in three words. We just read it a moment ago. Justification, sanctification, glorification. In the Old Testament, there are three Old Testament uh, patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The tabernacle had three sections, the, the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. The day of atonement, the high priest would go in and make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The the angels in the Old Testament, they cry out three times, holy, holy, holy. Daniel prayed three times a day. Jonah was in the belly of a well three days. The New Testament, 27 books. Three times three times three. The apostle Paul was blinded three days. He prayed three times for the thorn to be removed. He was stranded on Malta for three months after being shipwrecked. Jesus was born. He was visited by wise men who gave three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 12 years, at the age of 12, we know the story. He was separated from his parents for 
three days. I, I mentioned a few weeks ago, you know, you're in a lot of trouble when you lose God. It's really bad, right? They, they lost their son Jesus, right? Public ministry lasted three years. He started at 30, died at 33 years. Jesus was tempted three times by Satan in the desert. He had 12 disciples, but he had three in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. It was those three men that witnessed his transfiguration when he pulled back the veil of his humanity and he showed these three the Shekinah glory of God. It was Peter, James, and John that prayed with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus predicted Peter would deny him three times. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus expressed love and grace to Peter three times over breakfast. Jesus raised three people from the dead, Lazarus, the widow's son, and Jairus' daughter. He prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tradition says that he fell three times while carrying the cross on the Via Della Rosa. Jesus was one of three men who hung on the cross. There was a sign above him that said King of the Jews in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He was placed on the cross at the third hour of the day. At the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., he declared three words of victory. It is finished. Tetelestai, literally. They used that word, tetelestai, paid in full, right? Debt paid. They would, they would stamp a, a, a debt record saying, Tetelestai, debt paid in full. The earth trembled and darkness fell on the land for three hours. The world waited. Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. But on the third day, the stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty and Christ rose again from the grave. You know what Jesus said? Three words, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Amen? The, the word three stands for wholeness, for completion. In verse 32, it says, he who did not spare his own son. If you want to know the depth of God's love for you, you look at the cross. The greatest gift that God could ever give, he gave himself. He gave his son. He did not spare his son. He freely, willingly gave his son. He says, but gave him up for us all. Circle the word all in your notes. For us all. Not just for some. Not just for the, the, the super spiritual elite people. No, he came for all. Whether you got some things together or you're a complete mess, he came for you. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the point that Paul is trying to make. If God is going to give us the greater gift, which is the gift of a son, which is the death of a son, which is the burial of a son, which is the resurrection, the victorious resurrection of our King Jesus, amen? That's the greatest gift. If he, if he gave Jesus, who's the greater gift, surely he will give us the lesser gifts. When you get Jesus, here's what Paul's saying. When you get Jesus, you get everything. See, the world without Jesus, they feel like they believe they have everything but really they have nothing. They have nothing that truly satisfies. Nothing that fills the aching, burning hole within their heart. People are looking for truth. 
They're looking for purpose. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for answers. And Christ came to deliver all of that. He came to deliver truth. He came to give us purpose and meaning. He came so that we might have life through him. God gives us the best gift. And then he tacks everything else on. Amen. Look at verse 33 of Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Here's point number three. God paves a way for us to be in a relationship with him. He paves a way for us to know him. You know, in the Bible, God is pictured as this unwaveringly just and holy judge. You know, it's kind of a good reminder. We are not the judge, right? We're not the judge. So here's the deal. If we're not the judge, put down the gavel. Put down the gavel. You know, uh, one, of, one, of, uh, one of the mottos that, that I've said over the years is, you know what? We're so busy hating other people's sin. How about we hate our own sin first, right? Hate your own sin first. Deal with your own sin before you deal with someone else's sin. I think that's Jesus. I think that's Bible, right? Right? Deal with the little speck. I mean, deal with the massive bulging plank that's got your eye all bloody and crusty. Deal with that before you walk over and take a, a grain of sand out of someone's eye. Hate your own sin. Deal with your own sin. Put down the gavel. You know, no one gets away with anything in the courtroom of life because God is an unwaveringly just and holy God and judge. We're sinners, we're guilty before him. And yet, this is what the Apostle Paul says. And I want you to see this. This is the beauty of the gospel. He basically says, and yet no charge can stick against us. No one can condemn us. So you say, well, hold on here. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. The, the overarching storyline of the Bible is that um, we are fallen, we are broken, we are sinful, and, and, and God bridged the gap to redeem us. He's holy, we're not. We stand guilty before him. So how can no charge stick against us? How can we stand before God not incinerated, not completely burned up, not condemned, right? Here's the answer. This is what Paul said. It is God who justifies the focus of verse 33 is not on justification per se, but on the God who justifies. You can't justify yourself. You can't declare you're righteous. You can say, I'm righteous, I'm righteous, I'm righteous. And you know what? A lot of people do that. A lot of people are so self-righteous. They think they're so righteous. They're so good. But it is God who makes that declaration over you. When you come to faith in Christ, Romans chapter five, verse one says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Someone say that with me. We have been justified by faith. It doesn't say justified by works. It doesn't say justified by baptism. It doesn't say justified by church attendance. It doesn't say justified by, I was raised in a Christian home. My mama is a believer. My daddy's a believer. No, you are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that we are justified by faith. God has acquitted us. He has reckoned us righteous. To be justified means to be made legally right with God. Legally right with God. And the relationship that we have in Christ changes everything. Paul goes on to state that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is holy. 
He's this holy, just judge. We're guilty sinners. But the death of Christ changes everything. Because of his death for us, there is no condemnation. No condemnation. I like what Martin Luther, he, the great reformer, he calls this the great exchange. Jesus' death for my life. His rejection for my acceptance. His righteousness for my condemnation. When I think about the gospel, I, I think of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you come to Christ, there is no condemnation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul was writing to the church of Corinth. And he says, listen, the, the old has passed away. The new has come. Like your old self, your old life, identity, everything, it's gone. It's gone. You are a new creation. You're a new person. You have new identity in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Look at the next question. It says, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here's point number four. Jesus forever intercedes for us. He forever intercedes for us. He doesn't just intercede for you the moment you come to faith in him. It's a forever intercession. He intercedes for you. Paul poses this question, who can condemn you? And the answer is no one. Paul gives us two main reasons why no condemnation can stand against you as a believer. In verse 33, the answer was, it is God who justifies. Now in, the, in verse 34, the answer is, because Christ Jesus died, was raised, is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. So the reason the infinitely just and holy God can justify the ungodly by faith alone is because of what Christ did in verse 34. He died, he was raised back to life, he's seated with the Father, and he's now interceding for us. He forever intercedes for us. Romans 8 verse 1, I alluded to it a moment ago. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I mean, that should make you want to shout this morning. I mean, no penalty. Just think about it for a moment. No penalty. No punishment. No disapproval. No sentencing. No guilt, no shame, no shackles of sin. Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And that's the rock that I stand on. When I feel unworthy, Jesus died for me. When I'm struggling with sin, Jesus died for me. He paid for that sin. I'm going to confess that. I'm going to get that right. Right? Jesus conquered the grave. And because of the, the grave being conquered, there is no condemnation. But here in verse 34, Paul is saying there, there are no condemners. There are no condemners. Christ Jesus is the one who died. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here's the deal. When people say, well, Jesus, you know, he came. He came, so... To, to live that perfect example life, or he came to you know, help the poor, 
feed people who were hungry. He just came to give a, a perfect example. No, no. His mission was greater than that. His mission was to bridge the infinite divide between lost humanity and God the Father. He came to bring us to God. This is what Peter is saying. Um, a moment ago, we, 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 just, we, we basically read the verse, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Paul says, more than that. Okay, so he didn't just die, right? We, we like to just get fixated on just the crucifixion, the cross. No, more than that, it was more than just Friday. It was Sunday morning. He was raised. Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father because of the verb in verse 34 is passive. It doesn't say Christ rose, but Christ was raised. He was raised by the Father, by the power of the Spirit of God. God was satisfied with the death of his son, which was a once for all, never to be done again, work of atonement. Paul goes on and says, who is at the right hand of God? To be at God's right hand means to rule and to reign, to have supreme authority and power over everything. Here's my question to you, a little quick point of application. Where is God not ruling and reigning in your life? Because here's the deal. We all have gaps. We all have shortcomings. We all have things we're struggling with, right? strongholds. Things that we're not experiencing the, the victory of Christ in our life. What, what in your life have you not yielded to the Savior? What is that, that, that attitude, that, that pattern of sinful behavior, whatever that is, what, what is that thing that you're holding on to? You're not willing to let go. You're, you're not willing to just surrender and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to rule and reign in this area. If he's at the right hand of the Father, we know the Bible says that when we give our lives to Christ, he gives us a new heart. He should be ruling and reigning within us. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the sovereign one. Paul, Paul goes on and he says, who indeed is interceding for us. And we talked about that a moment ago. Hebrews 7.25 says, consequently, he is able to save to the othermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love that little phrase. He is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. That means it doesn't matter what you've done. That means God's grace is bigger than any of your sin. It's bigger his grace is bigger than any sin you could ever commit. His grace is, is deeper than any sin you could, you, could, you could ever commit. His grace is so big and so wide and so deep and so rich, it can transform your life. He's able to save to the uttermost. Some people say, oh, Pastor Elijah, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know the skeletons in the closet. You don't understand the secrets that I've been holding on to that no one knows about. I'll tell you this. God sees it all, he knows it all, and he nailed all of that sin to the cross. Jesus paid for all your sin in full, in full. 
He's able to save to the othermost. If you just surrender, if you come to him by, with simple faith and you acknowledge your, your sinfulness, your brokenness, God will do an amazing work in your life. Heard about a Sunday school teacher who was examining her, um, her students after a series of lessons on the omnipotence of God. She asked, now, now that we've studied all about the greatness of God, is there anything God can't do? Well, there was dead silence. Finally, one little boy held up his hand. The teacher couldn't believe it. She had hammered for weeks and weeks about the omnipotent power of God. She looked at that young man and said, well, Sammy, just what is it that God can't do? The little boy said, well, he can't please everybody. <laughs> right? That's very true. He can't please everyone. Very true. But he can intercede for everyone. And he draws near to those who draw near to him. God can save us. In Romans chapter eight, verse 35 to 39, I wanna conclude with this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Literally in the Greek, super conquerors. Through him who loved us. Everything is in Christ. Everything is through Christ. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the final point. God's love for us is unconditional. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. I quote C.S. Lewis a lot because that guy was just so full of wisdom and insight. C.S. Lewis said, the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. It's a good reminder this morning. No matter what you do, God's feelings and his saving grace towards you does not change. You know, Paul lists seven kinds of sufferings that will never separate us from the love of Jesus. Tribulation. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Distress. Even though you may face trouble or difficulty, Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. Persecution. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Famine. Even though you may experience hunger, someday you will take a seat at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Nakedness. You may be destitute and poor. Someday you will be given a glorified body like the Son of God. Danger. You may experience danger. Someday you will be safe in the loving arms of our Savior for all eternity. Sword, someone may kill you with a sword or dagger and take your life, but they can't take your soul that's been purchased by God. You know, there was a preschool, Sunday school teacher of a four-year-old class who asked, um, asked the little kids this question, can anyone tell me how much God loves us? And a little boy in the classroom said, to infinity and beyond. I love that. You know, that's good theology. God loves us to infinity and beyond. 
Who can comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ? God's love for us is so high and rich and deep. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. May that truth just lodge within your heart this week. Go with God this week and just just reflect upon God's love and his goodness in your life and what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.